0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast from a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in revolution as we learn all about the cultural societal impacts of the new economic policy. So let's continue. Youth, a wavering vanguard. In Soviet Russia, young people made up a majority of society. In 1926, under-twenties accounted for just over half the rural population footnote 66. The Bolsheviks looked on children as the generation that would make the socialist future and concentrated scarce resources on their welfare and education. The women's department and other agencies launched campaigns to improve the quality of childcare and to discourage practices such as corporal punishment new limitations on child labour combined with the lengthening of schooling, delaying entry into adulthood. The rapid decline in infant mortality during the 1920s and the decline in family size may also have served to increase the emotional investment of parents in their children. In late imperial Russia, the idea of childhood as a time of innocence had taken root, and the Bolsheviks built upon the optimism implicit in this idealisation. Footnote 67. Building on international progressive thinking in pedagogy and public health, they saw the kindergarten as a substitute for the family, an institution in which the values of the new society could be instilled in preschool children. Later, in the 1920s, as responsibility for childcare reverted to the family, the emphasis of pedagogy shifted to training the child, albeit still with a strong emphasis on ensuring that the experience of kindergarten was a happy one. Footnote 68. The Bolsheviks believed that children belonged first and foremost to society, although there was no consensus as to where the line should be drawn between parental and state responsibilities. The legal expert a. Goichbarg, a key author of the Marriage Code, besought parents to reject, quote, their narrow and irrational love for their children, end quote, and opined that the state would, quote, provide vastly better results than the private, individual, unscientific and irrational approach of individually loving but ignorant parents, end quote, footnote 69 but his was a minority view. Since the government did not have resources to take on the upbringing of children, parents continued to shoulder most of the responsibility. In theory, however, their right to do so was conditional on their performing their duties in accordance with the values of the revolution. Quote, if fathers persistently try to turn their children into narrow little property owners or mystics, then children have the ethical right to forsake them. End quote. Crucially, children were urged to re-educate their parents in the values of the new society. In 1928, thousands took to the streets bearing slogans, against our drunken fathers, we demand sobriety of our parents. In 1922, the Young Pioneers was formed to organize sports, excursions and summer camps for children aged 10 to 16. By 1926, it had over 2 million members, 46% of them female, including nearly 300,000 in the Octia Briata, which catered for 8 to 11 year olds, later 7 to 9 year olds, with its motto of Always Be Prepared. Its oath flags and drill, It was Gridoland of the Boy Scouts, which had between 30,000 and 50,000 members in 1917, but which had been banned for being imperialistic. Footnote 70. Every pioneer swore an initiation oath I will firmly uphold the cause of the working class in its struggle for the liberation of the workers and peasants throughout the world. End quote. The organization's jaunty, march-like songs proclaimed, quote, Let the bonfires soar, blue nights, we are pioneers, the children of workers, the era is near, of bright years. The motto of the pioneers is, be prepared. Quote. Yet clearly not all pioneers had such high-minded ideals footnote 71 In 1929, Shura Klimova, a 14-year-old girl from Barnaul, wrote to the journal Pioneer outlining her wish to become a film star. Quote, "I always look good in photographs, and I would like to be known throughout the world and be the finest film star in our Soviet Union." End quote. The journal was inundated with letters, most of them seeking to put her back on the Right path. She was taunted by her classmates, who slipped notes to her during lessons, saying, quote, Dear S, please give 15,000 rubles to our school. Or, Esteemed Mary Pickford, when shall we see your first movie? End quote. When her father took her out of school and found her a job at a railway station, Shora wrote once again to the journal, this time in outrage quote, he forgot one thing, to ask me first, end quote, footnote 72. That the plucky Shura may have been more typical of Soviet children than the zealous pioneers who condemned her conceit and aristocratic ways is suggested by that fact that surveys of school children showed that only 2% wished to become communists when they grew up. One of the most appalling problems facing the Bolsheviks was the terrifying number of orphaned and abandoned children who lived on city streets, in railway stations and in cellars, and who survived by begging, peddling or stealing. See figure 7.5. Footnote 73. The problem had emerged before the first world war, but escalated massively with war, revolution and famine. By 1922, at least 7 million children, over three quarters of them boys, had been abandoned by or lost contact with their parents. They formed a distinct subculture with their gangs, hierarchies, turf, codes, rituals, and slang. Heroic efforts were made to settle them in children's homes and colonies and from 1923 in experimental labour communes based on self-government. Most of these were inspired by a child-centred approach to rehabilitation, but the most famous of the communes, that of the Ukrainian ex-school Anton Makarenko, rejected this in favour of group-imposed discipline and military drill. By the late 1920s, the number of abandoned children had been reduced to around 200,000, although conditions in children's homes remained grim. The huge number of children living on the streets was a major cause of the rise in juvenile crime, which continued to be treated leniently until the 1930s when a full-scale reversal of official attitudes took place with leading jurists denouncing the, quote, putrid view that children should not be punished, End quote. footnote 74. By 1925, 1.5 million young people were Komsomol members, yet this represented less than 6% of eligible youth. In the early 1920s, the Komsomol concentrated on organizing and inspiring urban youth, but in the mid-1920s, increasing efforts were made to organise rural youth, with the initiative taken by demobilised soldiers. By 1926, nearly 60% of members were peasants. Footnote 75. Whereas heroism, sacrifice and combativeness had been lauded during the Civil War, quote, smartness, discipline, training and self-organisation, end quote, became the watchwords of NEP. Footnote 76. Some young men bemoaned the turn away from civil war romanticism and proved unwilling to knuckle down to the tasks of economic and cultural development. The proportion of young women in the Komsomol rose to about one-fifth by the mid-1920s, higher than in the party, but young men predominated, since they had higher levels of literacy, often had experience of army service and seasonal work, and were generally less tied down by family obligations. Campaigns were waged against the more egregious expressions of male chauvinism, treating female recruits as sexual objects, setting them to such tasks as cleaning and sewing, but little was done to address the fact that many young women felt alienated by the politicised and increasingly bureaucratic culture of the Komsomol. By 1926, the organisation was willing to sponsor the dances it had once deplored, but its routines of meetings, speeches, political education, and demonstrations alienated men and women alike. One consequence was that although by the late 1920s the Komsomol had twice the membership of the all-union communist party, turnover of membership was high. Nevertheless the young were increasingly at odds with their parents over such matters as church attendance or church marriage, fired by adolescent rebellion and zealous advocacy of the new Soviet rituals. For their part, traditionally minded parents deplored the effect of the Komsomol on their offspring. Kolka has stuck up a picture of Lenin in place of the icon, and now goes to rallies carrying banners and singing scurrilous songs. Footnote 77: Official rhetoric cast youth in the role of revolutionary vanguard. Yet much anxiety was expressed about the waning of revolutionary fervour among young people. Footnote 78. In 1923, the student newspaper at Petrograd University claimed that only 10% of students actively supported the revolution, that 60% were non-party, 15% to 20% clearly anti-Soviet, and 10% Totally apathetic. This reflected difficulties young people faced, including unemployment, homelessness, and payment of tuition fees, as well as a wider public unease that the revolution was losing its way. In his preface to a volume of essays on the new way of life, a Bolshevik pundit, A. Slepkov, contrasted the healthy, energetic, cultured social activists to the petty bourgeois mongrels and those who suffer from moral and ideological rickets These petty bourgeois mongrels were exemplified in the figure of the hooligan, who caused something of a moral panic in the mid-1920s. The causes of the real or imagined increase in hooliganism were unclear feeding fears that the social body was becoming diseased. Other social phenomena that provoked soul-searching among idealists included young women with red lipstick, bobbed hair, and high heels, and young men with tight, double-breasted jackets and Oxford trousers, their dress and demeanor connoting bourgeois decadence. One forsaken worker wrote, quote, Wherever you look, posters and notices display themselves announcing some masked ball, some dance, or other such entertainment. Seize the time while your soul is still impressionable. Before your thoughts become decrepit, before need cuts off your wings, go to lectures, to the theatre, to museums, where you will develop yourselves. End quote. Footnote 80. Even more troubling was the epidemic of suicides that followed that of the poet Sergei Essenin in December 1925, which was construed as evidence that young people were falling prey to an unhealthy introspection. Finally, there were those youngsters who, in disillusionment with a sinful world and in search of absolute values, turned to religious denominations such as Baptists, Adventists, and Evangelicals, whose advocacy of chastity, temperance, politeness, smart dress, and abstention from swearing provided them with a moral compass. Propaganda and popular culture. For the Bolsheviks, the word propaganda lacked any negative connotation. Footnote 81. Possessed, as they believed they were, of the knowledge required to create a qualitatively better society, they had no compunction in using the full panoply of state power to disseminate their ideas and values and to discredit those of their enemies, seeking to mould the thinking, emotions and behaviour of the populace at large. The Bolsheviks did not conceive of propaganda as brainwashing, but as political enlightenment, education designed to raise political awareness, overcome ignorance, and to produce fighting, thinking citizens. The party had historically distinguished between propaganda, which Plekhanov had defined as presenting many ideas to a few, and agitation, which he defined as presenting a few ideas to the many. In 1920, the Central Committee of the RKPB set up a department of agitprop, and party committees at all levels were soon required to set up similar departments. However, the Chief Political Enlightenment Committee, which was actually a state body under the Commissariat of Education, had overall responsibility for coordinating propaganda through its provincial and local subsections. It sent out instructions to local departments, organized special campaigns, and put on training courses for propagandists. At local level, there might be scores of agitprop groups, attached not only to party organs, but also to Soviets, factory committees, and trade unions. The new Soviet holidays with a peak time for agitprop activity, around 16 in number. Some completely new, such as the anniversary of Lenin's death on the 21st of January or the day of the Paris Commune on the 18th of March, others appropriations of traditional holidays, such as St. John's Day, which became Electrification Day. These holidays saw Agitprop organizations take to the streets in Carnival esque mode. Footnote 82. Agitprop was underfunded and poorly coordinated yet the Bolsheviks were creative in the methods they used to disseminate official ideology and promote particular campaigns. The bedrock of agitprop was oral communication in the form of meetings, speeches and debates. This was supplemented by visual propaganda in the form of posters, cartoons, slides, newsreels, exhibitions and cinema. And as the literacy drive advanced, by popular newspapers, many stuck to walls in public spaces, leaflets, brochures, and information bulletins. Agitprop organs made clever and innovative use of theatrical forms. The Living Newspaper, a genre in which blue blouse agit groups specialized, acted out the current news through collective declamation, satirical rhyming couplets, chastushki, jokes, songs, and dance. In the Red Army, Komsomol, trade unions, and other organizations, mock trials were staged, designed to expose wrongdoing. In the Red Army, for example, a member of the collective might be put on trial by his fellows for desertion, banditry, or indiscipline, prompting debate about, and judgment of, his culpability. As a form of amateur dramatics, these seem to have been popular, although later they lost much of their spontaneity and became much more like shaming rituals. Footnote 83. In the cities, the trade unions ran a well-organized system of workers' clubs, which by 1927 had 7 million members, and which held lectures and debates, had their own libraries, and hosted theatrical performances, film showings, and concerts. One way to assess the effectiveness of propaganda, that is, its success in shaping the ideas and social values of the population, is to look at changes in the Russian language. The revolution had an enormous impact on everyday speech. Words that had been in common use, such as official, chinovnik, or policeman, Gorodovoy, disappeared, while a flood of new words appeared, which referred to the emerging realities of Soviet life, words such as comrade, tovarishish, Cheka, or ispolkom, a Soviet executive committee, many of them foreign in origin, such as proletariat. Other words underwent a change of meaning, such as citizen, which now took on a pejorative tone, since it was used of someone who was not a comrade. Many hitherto unusual verbs became widely used, to link up, Sviatsat, to deepen, Uglebit, to sharpen, zaostrit, and military metaphors suffused official discourse, so the talk of fronts, struggles, and mobilizations abounded. Footnote 84 Language in general became more formulaic, evident in the use of slogans, fixed expressions and stereotyped metaphors. The significance of this should not be minimized, since language, especially when it is articulated with social practices and political institutions, shapes the way we perceive the social world. There is evidence, for example, that peasants quickly learned to discuss village society in terms of the class categories approved by the regime, a good tactic if one wished to make claims on the state, justify oneself, or discredit one's fellows. Footnote 85 Because Soviet usages of languages were rooted in the experiences of daily life, in work, school, residence committee or army unit, they were unavoidable. For those who identified with the socialist project, mastery of the language of power was vital. The earnest efforts of worker correspondents and village correspondents, those tasked with reporting to the press on events in their milieu, to master the Soviet lexicon, were touching, sometimes comical. we youth awakening from eternal hibernation and apathy, forming influence in our blood, brightly reflecting the good progresses and initiatives, step by step, however slowly, are moving away from old and rotten throwbacks and branches. End quote. The strange words and locutions of official propaganda had an almost magical power for those said to be half schooled. Propaganda set out to discredit and invalidate customary frames of reference, such as religious discourse, and to set the boundaries of what was politically thinkable. Yet this was not easily achieved. The evidence suggests that official propaganda had only a limited effect for within popular culture, different discourses, religious, folkloric, populist, dialectical were well entrenched and these continued to shape orientations to the social world, often in ways that conflicted with official ideology. The young literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin became attuned in the 1920s to the interactions and tensions between different orders of discourse, and alert to the importance of social context in determining uses of speech, and this shaped his groundbreaking theories of language in the 1930s. Footnote 86 Members of the Komsmol, for example, were the most eager section of the population to master the new Soviet lexicon. Yet, many older party members were shocked at the way their conversations were saturated with the slang of the urban slums, village colloquialisms, and criminal argot. Footnote 87 Criminal argot, in particular, was fashionable, with phrases such as Little lady checkist," "chekushka," for a revolver, Bullfinch, Snegir, for a militiaman, and "pigeon," Golub, for a thief, footnote 88. One party official wrote, deprecatingly, Quote, the sharp comes small in perfect command of such literacy turns a phrase as smack you in the gob is considered by companionable comrades to be entirely ideologically reliable, evidently of proletarian origin. Comrades who consider it more cultivated or polite to address others as "vai," the polite form of you. In certain circumstances, are accused by Komsomol members of coming from a socially alien background, or, at least, of not having broken with the remnants of a bourgeois education. End quote. Footnote 89. All of this reminds us that official propaganda did not operate in a vacuum, that it had to contend with a robust popular culture, in which different discourses coexisted and contended. Popular culture, for example, delighted in puncturing the pretensions of the powerful through folk tales, carnivalesque celebrations, jokes, and songs. An article in Pravda complained quote, In editorial boards and clubs, in buses and mess halls, in theatres and taverns, in the army and at meetings, everywhere the anecdote, anecdote reigns supreme and, more to the point, the bawdy, spicy anecdote. End quote. A typical anecdote or humorous story was one inspired by a report that Lenin had suggested compensating the loss of revenue from alcohol by developing a cosmetics industry. Satirizing the typical institutions and practices of Soviet power, the anecdote told of how the government intended to introduce compulsory labour service in the lipstick industry, create a main administration for lipstick and Soviet power, inaugurate a communist lipstick week, and commission Yuri Steklov, the editor of Izvestia, to write an editorial denouncing the quote, anti-lipstick policy of the counter-revolution, end quote. Every major government initiative, such as the introduction of the new currency in 1924, would spur a wave of jokes. According to one, a priest watched with bewilderment as a peasant took the new Soviet money and made the sign of the cross with it. Why are you making the sign of the cross? he asked. That is Soviet money. Indeed, it is Soviet money, the peasant replied, but the silver it contains, father belongs to the church. A further source of black humor lay in the endless acronyms that Soviet power spawned. VKPB, the All-Union Communist Party, Bolshevik. The official name of the party from 1925 was said to stand for Vitero kroposno provo the Second Serfdom, while VCHK, the All-Russian Cheka, was said to stand for vzaya komu chelovku kaput. That is, everyone is done for. Footnote 90. A further reminder of the robustness of popular culture and its partial impermeability to official propaganda can be seen in the fact that rumour was rife in these years and a matter of serious concern to the authorities. The political police carefully monitored rumours, partly in order to evaluate the popular mood and partly to monitor the activities of enemies of the regime. Rumour is often an expression of social anxiety and of a shared conviction that information is scarce and that it is dangerous not to know what is going on. Sharing stories with others helped to assuage worry and disgruntlement and to build social solidarity. By far the most common rumour in the NEP years concerned the impending outbreak of war, which usually took the form of stories that Britain or Poland was about to invade. In Kargopol County in Vologda, in March 1923, the GPU reported, quote, There is a rumour spreading through the county that a war has begun with Poland and the great majority of peasants welcome it. They say that it will stop the predatory policy of Soviet power, and that the Poles will hang and drown the Communists in rivers. Soon, they say, we will overthrow and wipe the cursed Bolsheviks and their hated regime from the face of the earth, and we will be liberated from the yoke of the Yids, which is unleashing persecution on the Orthodox Church and closing churches. End quote. Footnote 91. Most rumours were not so patently hostile to the regime, yet people showed little trust in the official media so were ever ready to put their own interpretation on some unusual event. In 1925, the visit to Kursk of V. M. Molotov, secretary of the Central Committee, inspired talk in the city about the, quote, bad relations with Western states, especially America our government is painfully worn down and it is worried that things in the ussr are now so bad it is visiting the localities to cajole the peasants in case america bashes it on the head it is saying you mustn't let us down End quote. footnote 92 some of the rumours of war were of a supernatural type In the Orals in February 1927, tales of fiery pillars in the sky were taken to be portents of a war with Germany. Footnote 93. This reminds us that idioms and practices of a religious, magical, or folkloric type were still very much alive in popular culture and were used by ordinary people to impose meaning on the dislocating changes that were overwhelming their lives. Many rumours, for example, were apocalyptic in character, an interpretation of signs of the times which suggested that the Bolshevik regime was the antichrist that the Bible says will precede the second coming of Christ. The book of Revelation speaks of the mark of the beast, and in Russia, the word for mark and the word for press, peshat, are the same. So when a day of the Soviet press was instituted in 1922, it evoked considerable alarm, footnote 94. Similarly, the five-pointed red star, symbol of the Soviet Union, and in actuality a variant of a Masonic symbol, was seen as the symbol of the Antichrist. Stories circulated that confirmed the linkage between the regime and the Antichrist. Fifteen matchsticks would make the name Lenin, as well as the number 666, the number of the beast. Moreover, if one ascribed numbers to the different letters that make up the word communism, using a special occult scheme, they too totaled 666. Footnote 95. The fact that such apparently trivial stories were collected by the political police attests to the fact that the authorities felt far from secure. And that's going to do it for this week. We will be continuing and possibly finishing this chapter next week, and we are coming close to the end of this book in general. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter, for as long as it exists, at leftistreading. Feel free to give thoughts about this book, a previous book, or other books you think it would be worthwhile to cover, and a brief reminder that the next book I will be covering is Post-Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin, because with all of the material concerns and limitations of the Bolsheviks I am curious to see what our modern society perspective on how anarchism would work is and how our efficient methods of production factor into that. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also support them at patreon.com abnormalmapping. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medeas. You can find lots of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.